0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Behavior Trap Podcast featuring your host, Alan Lowe. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Megan Burkita. Megan currently lives in northern New Jersey, 45 minutes outside of New York City. She's been a BCBA for five years and has worked in the field for just under 10. Megan currently is the only BCBA for a large public school district. This large school district approximately has eight schools. That's crazy. That's crazy. Some fun facts about Megan is she's been a vegetarian for seven and a half years, and she's also a registered yoga teacher. How are you doing today, Megan?
1: I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: Good. Pretty excited to talk to you. You're my second podcast ever. Oh,
1: nice. I listened to the first episode earlier today in preparation for for this. It was pretty Good.
0: Wow. good. Thank you. Good. So there's one question I have to ask you to start this off. Okay. What got you into behavior analysis and what's your story for getting into the field?
1: So my undergraduate degree is nothing to do with behavior analysis at all. It's in English. Uh, So at this point, the most I'm doing with that is writing behavior plans. Um, So when I was in graduate school, I was going for initially I was going for my dual certification in special ed and elementary education when I got a full-time day job as a one-to-one aide within an autism program at an elementary school. So before that I had no experience or knowledge of ABA but was trained really well and was able to see the very clear difference it made for the students and which kind of made me do a complete 180 and change paths. So I left the graduate program I was in after one semester because I didn't really feel like teaching was what I really wanted to do anymore. Um, The BCBA who who trained me and who oversaw the program I was working in, uh, it really appealed to me like her her day-to-day working with all different kinds of students across different classrooms, age groups, different abilities and disabilities. Um, So that's really kind of what sparked my interest in the field. Um, I did wait a few years to finally go back for my master's in ABA, uh, but that was really what jump-started my uh, my change.
0: Oh, wow. And your story's... Yeah, you have a pretty good story then.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Thanks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're currently a BCBA, correct?
1: Yes, I've been a BCBA since 2015. I sat for the exam three times, which was excruciatingly stressful. As I'm sure anybody who is a BCBA probably knows, um, and I I did just start um, a PhD program from on online at Capella, so I have a long way to go on that one. I just started it in, in October, but um, I'm I'm keeping on.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Congrats! Thank you. Yeah, what school did you attend for, like the I guess your credentials really for the BCBA?
1: Yeah, so I did. I did it online, I went to or I I did it at Arizona State Um, and I chose that specifically because I knew I was going to have to pay for some of the classes out of pocket and at the time, I mean I think there's more now that are kind of similar, but at the time uh, ASU was one one of very few schools at the time that had the lowest cost per graduate credit. Um, which is now similar to the reason why I chose capella.
0: Ah, okay, that makes it. Were you were you residing in Arizona at that time, or was this no, not at all. Well?
1: I'm, I'm in New Jersey. I've always been in New Jersey. Actually, I was living in New York State for a while, but still within the East Coast tri state area.
0: Ah, if I remember correctly, you're only forty five minutes away from the Big Apple.
1: Yes, uh, less than an hour. I mean. Theoretically, but there's always traffic, so it's way longer than that.
0: Oh, I can't imagine. Who is your supervisor at Arizona State?
1: Oh, my supervisor, like for my supervision hours? Yeah. Oh, so when I, I got my supervision hours here while I was working as a behavior specialist at an outpatient clinic in Westchester County, New York, while I was simultaneously doing my classes online. Um, so my, my supervisor there was, uh, Dr. Stephanie Contrucci-Kuhn. Uh, so she co-founded the program that I was working at as a behavior specialist. Um, I learned so many things from her. Um, she has since moved on and, uh, she's a professor now at Western Connecticut State in the behavior analysis department.
0: Wow. Well, that's awesome. What's, uh, one thing you remember about being under her supervision?
1: Um, I learned a lot just by watching her and watching like her conduct sessions, being part of sessions, collecting data during sessions. But, um, I think my, the biggest takeaway was that I, that I got from her and watching her was how to properly implement a functional analysis and from client to client, just observing the differences and severity in behavior across individuals within the same condition. So like an FA for one client, an FA for another, if the behavior is attention maintained for both of them, I'm providing the same consequence, but the behavior looks completely different. So I learned a lot just from watching that and kind of helping her conduct FAs.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. When you first saw your first functional analysis, what was your thoughts? Like, whenever I first saw one, I thought it was just wild how they could, like, manipulate the variables to, like, produce and evoke these problem behaviors. It was just, it was astounding to me.
1: Yeah, the differences, or what I, I think what I noticed most was, I mean, there was a very clear and cut and dry difference, obviously, in the different conditions. But I, I couldn't, just from observing, like, figure out what the differences were. Do you know what I mean? Like in the attention condition, you do this a specific way. So I couldn't necessarily see the fluidity of understanding the different conditions right away. So watching her uh, do all these different assessments with different uh, clients um, over time, I was like, oh, okay, this is when you do X, Y, and Z. And this is when you don't do X, Y, and Z. So it, it's probably the most complex thing I feel like I, I, I learned from her. And I don't think knowing myself could have learned it any other way. So like, if you read, you know, the description of how to do a functional analysis, it's completely, or it was completely different for me to watch it like live
0: Uh, yeah that makes sense because you had to watch it from a live perspective
1: yeah
0: oh wow okay so whenever you guys got to watch one did you get did they have a severe behavior clinic were they an early intervention
1: it was it was really all of it so we would see clients as young as three or four to as old as 50-60. And they did not need to have an autism diagnosis. Most of them did. Others were intellectually disabled. Um, we were in like a, a, a regular clinic room and had a two-way mirror. Um, so for some of our clients who had um, like reactivity issues with somebody being there, we would kind of be able to contrive the environment and some of us, myself and other behavior specialists, would be on the other side of the mirror to kind of get an accurate data collection on, on, on the, on the realities of the behavior that was observed.
0: Yeah. Wow, I didn't think about that. So, what was it like doing a thesis? Like, since you were, I guess, on the other side of the world.
1: <laughs> so, at the time when I was. Um, In my master's program, I I don't know if it's different now. I know that there has been a lot of changes to Arizona State's um, verified course sequence through the BACB, but when I was taking classes there in 2013-ish, when I finished, I did not need to do like a formal research-based thesis. Uh, I I, I did do a final paper, and honestly, I, I... I don't even remember what I wrote it on. Oh.
0: <laughs>
1: um I could probably find it going back in my uh my documents, but I I don't remember. If I had to say I think I did it on I, I did like a literature review on self-injurious behavior and uh with an automatic function.
0: Oh, okay. Was there any like domain of of behavior analysis that really stood out to you during your time at Arizona State?
1: Um, well, at the time, I was because I was able to apply kind of everything that I was learning from the courses I was taking, and I was working at this at this um, outpatient clinic. I, I and based on the clients that we saw and and their behavior, I was like really into and um, self injurious behavior was really relative. And relevant to me at the time, um, so that's sort of what I I focused a lot of my my papers on, my research, and um, I found out a lot of good stuff. But it did, wasn't necessarily like a, a thesis.
0: Mm, that makes sense. Do you remember how you got interested in that topic?
1: Yeah, just just from working with uh, some of the clients that we saw, and uh, like the topography of self-injurious behavior versus the severity and versus the function. Um, it, it was all, it seemed very confusing to me how such a dangerous behavior could be multiply maintained or only one function. Um, and, and it kind of, I kind of became a little obsessed about like, okay, but what? regardless of function, regardless of functions, regardless of what it looks like, Still, clearly dangerous because it's self-injurious. What are like? Is there a specific treatment that would kind of be best across the board, or like regardless of function? Obviously, I know that now. That's not accurate, but um, that was that was sort of how I how I got into that uh, that topic.
0: Yeah, that makes sense for our listeners that are probably just now getting into our field. Can you kind of explain a little bit what self-injurious behavior is?
1: Sure, so self-injurious behavior um, is is really just a fancy term for uh, an aggressive behavior that a client or student or individual would um, inflict on themselves. So that could be hitting themselves in the head with um, an open hand, like a slap, or like a closed fist, more like a punch. anything that hurts themselves. So I've I've seen a lot of self-injurious behavior that um, isn't, I guess, maybe common that maybe most people would see. For example, um, eye gouging, kind of like sticking fingers in your eyeballs, like <laughs> the intensity that it clearly looks like it hurts um, or that their eyes are very red. Um, it's uh, behavior that inflicts pain, um, injury, whether it's visible immediately, like with maybe a blood or a scratch or later with like a bruise or something on any part of the body.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Perfect. Do you know, I know for a lot of people who possibly listen to this podcast, a lot of them maybe are just now getting into the field and they're just now learning about SIB. Can you go, can you explain a little bit of like how the functions work with SIB? Like what is a sensory function or an automatic function? I know a lot of people that are listening, sometimes those can be a little tricky because it's like, oh, that's automatically maintained.
1: Yes. Um, so this is a question I get um, pretty frequently from some of the staff that I work with who are, who are RBTs or are like one-to-one paras. Um, and I, I try to explain it in a way that it is so simple enough for such a not simple behavior. Um, so if there is a behavior, a self injurious behavior that has an automatic function, I, I kind of feel like it's for whatever reason in this person's body at that specific time, that's what they need to do to like. Either regulate their body or to make their body feel a little bit better than it was if they didn't do it. So like when you have an an itch you you scratch it right and then that goes away. That Not that that is an automatic function but something in your body is telling you to do the scratch so that you do not itch. Um, some behavior I know if, if it's automatically maintained they they do it because they like the sensation of the pain that it gives them, and sometimes they engage in the behavior for the sensation that it makes their their body be relieved from some sort of other pain that might be going on. I don't know if that makes sense or. Yeah.
0: Oh, too- that makes perfect sense. I think it, I can see it from your perspective. It is kind of it's a quite it's quite a difficult system that's going on there, and it's kind of hard to explain without seeing it or maybe having some visuals to seeing, like, an automatic function or just yeah. showing it, I guess.
1: And the thing with an automatic function is, I feel like anyway, you kind of don't ever know for sure, like, why it's happening. You just can kind of say with data and with assessments, oh, this serves an automatic function, but, like, what does it feel like for this particular individual? I don't think that there's any assessment or data to collect that I know that can really give you that answer.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's a that's a pretty tricky one, though. Yes. Yeah. Um, so since I remember you mentioned earlier, you just got accepted in uh, your PhD program. What are you getting a PhD in?
1: Uh, psychology with a specialization in behavior analysis. So I'm going for the long haul.
0: Oh, wow. Who's your? Um, do you have a, su- a supervisor currently?
1: No, so I just started this past October. I've only taken one class. Uh, my next two classes actually start next Monday um, at, at Capella, which is also online. Um, and I, 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 they have some pretty fancy names for, for the courses that are a little daunting, but um, I'm excited about it.
0: Yeah, what inspired you to continue and go for your PhD I know I've been thinking about it recently because I graduate in a year and a half and I've been thinking a lot recently like oh man do I want to keep on going and just get it over with or do I want to wait so I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah so for me personally um, I I got my master's and I I passed my exam finally Um, and then so in 2015 so I've been kind of out and in the field working for the past five years, four and a half, five years now. Um, and I, I do love my job. I love what I do. I love the, the field. I love the science of behavior analysis, but I want to get to a point where um, I can kind of broadcast like my knowledge and my education on a wider scale than I, I feel like I am doing right now Um, And I don't necessarily think that you need a PhD to do that, but where I am and the jobs that I've had, I I feel like that was just the next step for me. I also am a nerd and I I love to learn. I love school. Um, It it just felt natural for this to be the next step.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Where are you working now?
1: Right now I am at um, a public school district. So I work I'm employed by the school full time, um, for the district has eight schools, uh, six elementary, one middle school, one high school, and there's just, there's just me. So it's, uh, it's, uh, been, uh, <laughs> it's been rough, um, at times, but Sorry. yes. <laughs>
0: oh man. Do they just not have the resources to get another behavior analyst or were you just the only one, I guess, within the area?
1: Uh, Both. So they just recently, so the school district is actually coincidentally the school district that I grew up going to school in and graduated from. Um, So I kind of had a leg up on, on that, I would say. Um, but they just recently, maybe within the past two or three years, kind of finally decided to get their own, like in-house district autism program. Um, and I-, I live in a very, extru- like very rural area. Even though I'm, you know, less than an hour away from the city, like we talked about, um, we live. I live in the woods. Um, not very many people want to drive up here if they were to, you know, offer a job. So when I saw that it was in my hometown, I kind of went for it. And it's been great. And I've, I, I'm i happy that I've been able to kind of get some resources into our program that weren't there a few years ago. And everyone seems pretty happy with it. Um, I'm pretty happy with it. It's, um, it, it's a lot just school-wise and, and like, I'm one person, but um, I I know they're kind of working on something in the future, but it's just me.
0: Do you think you're going to stay there following getting your PhD, or where do you think you're going to go after that? Any plans, maybe?
1: Um, I don't don't really know. Um, So my getting or going for my PhD is not, for me, directly related to my current job. Um, ideally, like maybe in, you know, 10 years or so, I would like to see myself teaching at like the university level. Um, but that could happen, you know, in addition to remaining working at a school district, it doesn't have to be instead of, um, so I, I'm not really sure right now.
0: That makes sense. So you're thinking maybe more possibly academia compared to just peer research?
1: Yes. Yes, for sure. Oh, wow.
0: That's crazy. That would It's definitely the route I would like to go.
1: Yeah, so I haven't, um, you know, because I, I just started this PhD program, there's, like, this looming pressure of, like, what is your super, super specific dissertation topic going to, which I have no idea yet. Um, weeks in. <laughs> but for right now, and this could quite possibly change my main focus for getting a phd would be to go the academia route rather than the research route
0: okay in new jersey or possibly moving west east i guess you can't go much further east
1: (laughs) no can't (laughs) Um, but again with that i'm not sure i'm not sure either that's awesome i I feel like it will open up more opportunities to make myself a little bit more marketable with with that degree if i did want to uh toy with the idea of moving somewhere else
0: yeah that makes sense do you whenever you applied to get your phd um is there anything that you know now that you wish you would have known before you started applying to like your phd program like for the people that are thinking about applying to get their phd
1: Um, not yet. Again, I've only taken one class and maybe the only thing I might say for anybody listening who is in a master's degree in person and is thinking about like an online program, um, because both of my, my master's and this will be, and my PhD will be completed online. But I can't say enough positive things about online degree programs. Um, I, I've i never gotten as good of grades as I have um, doing my master's online. Um, even though I've had just one class, I, I got a really good grade and I was really proud of myself for doing that. But I know for me, uh, the convenience of it was like a game changer. Um, I could do it when I had time. I could go back to specific materials if I needed to. Um, I was able to follow my own pace and manage my own time rather than going to a physical class with other people and following a a group's time, if that makes sense. So that, I I knew if I was gonna go back to school, it would be online only because it really worked for me. Um, But I know the complete opposite or people could say the complete opposite and they just can't do it. Um, So that's something to keep in mind if people are thinking about going back to school or or what might be best for them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So with where you're working at currently, like at the school district, is there anything that you wish you would have known before you applied for that job? Did you know it was, such a large school district with only one BCBA?
1: Well, like I said, I I went to school in this district. So I I, I do know how, how large it is, but when, obviously when I was there, I was there as a student, not as an employee. Um, so I have like a centralized location. Um, I'm considered part of the child study team. Um, so I, I work mostly with the autism program and we we also have an in-house behavioral disabilities program. From time to time, I'll um, work with some of some of the students within like the general ed population, um, more like on a consult basis if the teachers need some help with something or if a student needs uh, a more indiv- individualized like class protocol. Um, but because it, it, it there's so many schools, I obviously can't be in in a million places at once. Um, but so just other than that, one thing I, I did wish I, I knew before um, working here in the state of New Jersey, I, I just wish I was more familiar with the state's um, like Department of Ed Codes and how myself as a BCBA kind of fit into that. Um, so New Jersey is one of the states left that currently does not require any licensure in addition to being certified as a BCBA. Um, so it was only in 2014 that the state created a specific code for BCBAs to be hired as a full-time school employee. Um, so even with this code... You know, having being a certified behavior analyst is not recognized still um, as a Department of Ed certification, which, because of that, um, also does not make me eligible for an educational services certificate, which is like what speech therapists have, um, occupational therapists, physical therapists who also don't have a teaching certificate but still work in a public school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of found that out the long way. Um, not that it, it changes whether or not I have a job. I just didn't know until I knew that I didn't know it kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So internally at the school, do you have to do, are you in charge of like the insurance or are there people that do the intakes for you? Like, how does that kind of work? Like, since you're the only BCBA.
1: So, because it's a school, we we're not in insurance based. So, if if you live within our town and um, you have an autism diagnosis, um, we can we have like a team of people. So, we have like learning consultants, um, school psychologists, social workers, um, who kind of do assessments um, with a student to kind of get a well-rounded view of. Where they might be best placed, where their um, where their challenges are, where their strengths are, so that we can provide the most appropriate placement um, for a, for a student. Um, so we don't do anything with like insurance. Um, so if I I don't technically do like an intake, but if there is a student that that comes in and maybe they they just moved to the district. Um, you know, a few months ago, I would get after, you know, X amount of steps have been exhausted, I would then get involved to either do a behavioral consult or a full FBA. And then based on those results, I would, you know, make recommendations or recommend to, for the student to have a specific behavior plan. And then it would be on me to then train the teacher or any um, instructional, like, paraprofessionals working with that student on the behavior plan to follow through with training on the plan, the data collection, the oversight of the data collection, and so on.
0: Dude, that's what I was, I was thinking about as you were kind of explaining to me, like, the school setting. I was wondering, oh, do you guys have a one-way mirror where you guys could do FAs in a certain room, or do you have cameras, do you set up iPads? I was kind of wondering, like, how the, um, just the assessments work in a school setting.
1: No, so it's very different than my experience when I was working at the outpatient clinic where we did have those two-way mirrors. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I try to do my, like, I won't do a full FA just because it's not feasible to do in the middle of a classroom with other students there. So I'll do other, um, you know, direct assessments. I'll take, I'll collect ABC data. I'll collect frequency or interval data on um, potential target behaviors to increase and decrease. Um, I will, so I sometimes will, imp, uh, give teachers the, the FAST questionnaire, so the Functional Assessment Screening Tool, just more so to use as a supplemental, uh, support for the data that I have already collected directly.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Well, that's crazy. Well, we can go ahead and start wrapping things up. But I have to ask you one final question. Sure. What's, before you started this long journey of yours, like you've got your master's at Arizona State, now you're in a PhD program, what's something you would have told yourself before you started all this? Is there something you would have done differently? I want to know.
1: Um, so I wish somebody would have told me or taught me some tools on how to rationally detach from the workday. Um, you know, I know I'm not the only person who perseverates at night. Uh, you know, before bed, on how the day went, or or question if I did something right, or if I'm even cut out to continue doing this. Um, so now, you know that I'm I'm in the thick of it. I'm kind. Of, I feel like I'm sometimes grasping for for straws at, at like what I can do differently or how to kind of just rationally detach and and just leave it at work um, rather than if I I feel like if I knew maybe proactively like how to prepare myself a little bit more I, maybe I would have done the same thing maybe not I'll never know but I I wish somebody would have told me um, something. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I really only recently have started to build up some tools to use for myself, but, but now that I, I've kind of been doing it for, you know, a few years now, I, I, that breaking that thought pattern can, can be difficult. And I, I just wish that I, that I was at least aware of it being a possibility of, of having such a high prevalency that it that it does for me now.
0: Wow. With um, doing the online, I know there's a lot of controversy saying, oh you don't get a, a great enough education doing your online degree for your masters. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: My thoughts are it's a degree. I did the same work as somebody would do in a classroom on a campus. Um I also think that there is a a good enough reason to point out that um, the BACB and Association for Behavior Analysis International is um, kind of like promoting these programs that are online by considering them an accredited university with a verified course sequence by both of these or one of these organizations. So I, I feel like it's, it's, I understand the controversy around it. And maybe I'm biased because I, I can't say positive things about my online degree program. And I'm at the same place where, you know, I have, I have a degree and I have a piece of paper that says I'm a board certified behavior analyst just like somebody else at you know who went to uh, a campus in person and sat in a classroom in a desk got so I think whatever works for for an individual is what to keep in mind because at the end of the day it's it's a degree and it's a piece of paper that says you have a degree
0: exactly well Megan it was a pleasure meeting you and talking to you tonight
1: yeah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to listening and, and listening to your future episodes.
0: Well, thank you so much, Megan. All right, thank you. I'm Rakita, I had such a great time getting to know her and interviewing her. She was so down to earth, and I feel as if she would do anything for her clients. She's making it work in New Jersey. She's making it work in the online programs. I fully support it. Go, Megan. See ya.